You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. Today we're joined by Frank Pont, one third of the design firm of Clayton, DeVries and Pont. Frank's journey to becoming a practicing golf course architect has a similar trajectory, resembling at least some of the characteristics of the progression of a Colt, a Fowler, a Mackenzie or a Simpson, insofar as having an unrelated primary career before focusing on the art of golf course design. CDP have recently completed a Harry Colt-inspired bunker renovation at my own home club, the Royal Dublin Golf Club. These revisions represent a reconnection with the design heritage of the second oldest golf course in Ireland. Over the course of this episode, we'll take a look at how RD evolved through the years and how Frank Pont and Mike Clayton, ably assisted by Hendrik Hilgert, Dar Golf, White Moss Bunker Liners, and the Royal Dublin Lynx team, led by course manager Alan Hammond, have elevated the playability, aesthetic, and inherent strategy of play at Dollymount. I've included a link in the show notes to some additional content that you may find useful and or interesting to peruse while you listen to the episode. I'm very grateful to Frank for affording me his time in recording this latest instalment of the Firm and Fast show. We really do hope you enjoy the listen. Hi, Frank. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. Yeah, thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me on. Maybe just to say, obviously, Clayton de Vries and Pont have been very busy gentlemen of late, juggling live projects in London, Dublin, Liverpool, Vietnam, and of course, that sandy site at Seven Mile Beach in Hobart that your colleagues Mike de Vries and Mike Clayton are massaging on behalf of Mr. Matt Goggin. Sounds like plenty of travel for you and the team. Where do we find you today? At home, yeah, which is rare. Uh, it's it's sort of the you know the the autumn and winter has been very very busy. It's kind of the the rush hour of our year, anyways, because especially with the changing climate, and uh, and with changing climate, I mean the fact that winters are warmer, and uh, and therefore you know you can play golf longer means that more of the work gets crammed in into a shorter period, because people want to do most clubs want to do work when. You know, people aren't playing when it's raining, cats and dogs, etc., which, again, doesn't help doing the work uh, unless you're on a beautiful sandy site like Royal Dublin. But uh, like at the Addington, which is pretty sandy and gravelly, uh, we, we, we struggled some parts of the winter because it just was so wet. But um, yeah, so it's been busy. I did a lot of traveling, almost as much traveling as I did as when I was still a consultant as a banker. So uh, that's not one of the things I cherish, but it's... As my wife always says, why do you have to travel six hours to see something in 50 minutes? You know, uh, unfortunately, that's what you have to do sometimes because a picture or even a video will not tell you as much as seeing it. Uh, and that's why sometimes you have to travel a lot. The devil is in the detail, undoubtedly. Yeah, you, well, you cannot. You, uh, some of my colleagues don't travel as much. And to be blunt, you can sometimes see that in, in some of the work. Uh, you know, if I wouldn't travel as much, you would see it in my work. <laughs> Listen, before we get into the Royal Dublin conversation, maybe for listeners that may not be too aware of your somewhat circuitous route to becoming a golf course architect, perhaps you can give us an intro to Frank Pont's career 
prior to taking the plunge into designing golf courses, obviously you mentioned you used to do a considerable amount of traveling around the world. Well, yeah, I mean, my, my well, let's, I grew up in the Philippines and in Brazil. My father was an expat for Philips, so that's where I got the Yankee accent. Um, uh, I went to American schools. Um, when I was back in the Netherlands, uh, did my high school, uh, and then the thought, okay, what are we going to study? And uh, I, basically because I like, you know, you're biased as a kid. Your father was an expat, so I was like, oh, I wouldn't mind being an expat. And that was in the 80s, beginning of the 80s. And in those days, uh, the biggest, the easiest way to be an expat was to actually be a builder because we were building a lot of stuff. The Dutch were building a lot of stuff in, 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 in Saudi and in the, you know, Abu Dhabi, that area. So I thought, okay, I'll just do civil engineering because that will be an easy way to go out there. Not a very informed choice, but I did it, uh, you know, struggled in the beginning because I didn't find it that interesting, but I did finish the core. I did finish the... Um, the uh, how do you call it did finish the the, the studies um, and basically started working for a Royal Dutch Shell uh, uh, building golf a bit uh, golf building uh, uh, oil platforms in Nor in Norway and uh, in, in the North Sea uh, did that for about a year and then I realized that I didn't want to do that the rest of my life um, went back to Delft basically did a sort of an assessment. And I remember when I came when I came to the results, they said, "Oh, can you still switch?" I said, "What do you mean?" They said, "Well, it's pure business that comes out of your test." And I'm like, "No, I already graduated." They're like, "Oh, okay. Well, then um, you should look into business education." And I I did. So I I applied to uh, a number of MBAs in in uh, in the states because it was a scholarship. I couldn't otherwise pay for it myself, and the scholarship was for like Harvard, Stanford, Chicago, Wharton. Um, well, I didn't have much work experience, so that meant I didn't get into uh, places like Harvard and Stanford require a lot of work experience. I didn't have that, but I did have the good score. So I got in in Chicago, uh, didn't know what I wanted to do. And if you don't know what you want to do and you're in business school, you, you become a consultant and did that first for McKinsey, which is a well-known brand. Uh, and then I switched. I, I, I had more fun at a different company called Monitor. It's a small Harvard Business School uh, prof, uh, Mike Porter, was one of the founders, and it was very much strategy, basically very comparable to a company like uh, Boston Consulting Group. Um, and did that for five, six years, uh, which was fun, but at a certain point you get fed up with just giving advice and, and nothing ever happens with the advice. Um, and then I got a call from London's, uh, you know, from a headhunter saying, oh, do you want to become an investment banker? I'm like, no, investment bankers are all assholes. Why would I want to become a... <laughs> and, and, uh, but he said, yeah, okay, what are you earning now? I said, well, X. He said, oh, but you could earn three or four X. I'm like, hmm, maybe we should talk. And uh, my boss basically at that point said, well, try it out if you want it. If you don't like it, you can always come back. And uh, so that's what I did. Went to there to, to join Merrill first. And uh, effectively, I didn't know much about banking, but I knew a lot about industries. I was a telecom specialist by that point. So they used me a lot for like, you know, explaining what the threats and, and possibilities were in the markets and uh, went along to a lot of pitches, learned the M&A part of uh, the business quite well. And then like happened so much in, in, in banking, uh, didn't, you know, there was upheaval at Merrill. So I, the whole team left and I, I went to another, I joined the team at a place called Deutsche uh, in the news again at the moment. And uh, that's where I spent the next five, six years. In the end, uh, by the end, I was the head of the telecoms uh, group. And that's where all the traveling, most of the traveling happened. And that was fun. I mean, you, you meet a lot of uh, very interesting people. 
you travel a lot, but it's it's not a lifestyle that's sustainable. And so at a certain point, I'd, I'd, I'd saved some money and I thought, okay, let's do something more creative. Um, I then quit Deutsche, spent two more years just going, did a couple of things. I was in a, uh, helped a, a, a telecom startup that was funded by Goldman Sachs in Germany. And then I also helped a, an Italian um, family fund, basically in TMT, telecom telecoms technology and media uh, from the Moratti family, the owners of Inter Milan. Uh, and that was fun because I was just traveling around uh, trying to basically create a fund, did that for two years. And then I thought, okay, now that, let's do something completely different. And uh, I knew I couldn't paint, I couldn't act, I couldn't write, uh, I couldn't sculpt. Uh, and then I saw, well, you know, two years master of science golf architecture. I thought, hey, I did a lot of golfing in the, in my stressful years because it was one of the few ways I could relax and uh, get your head empty, as I would call it. And uh, I'd spend more and more time reading about it, just thinking, okay, why, why, why is this interesting? Why do I like this golf course? Not that. And I thought, okay, that's creative, but it's still technical. It's something that I know. Maybe I can do this. So I went there, talked with them, and they said, "Yep, yeah, you got enough qualifications to to join the studies." And, and then I thought, okay, well, before I take the plunge, let me just try out a, an internship somewhere because if I don't like it, it's going to be a waste of time. And that's where I then I sent it. That was in the fax days. We still had faxes. So I faxed. Uh, I basically said, okay, who are the 10 best golf architects in the world? I'm just going to fax them. And, you know, because, again, that's, that's how you are. You're, as a banker, you always think big. So uh, seven never replied. Uh, three, I got three replies. Uh, one of them was Donald Steele. Who, oh no, who said, well, it's going to be tough. I don't have any space, but good luck. Uh, one was a European golf design who said, well, let's talk. Uh, and then, uh, but not sure we have space. And the third one was David Kidd. And he re reacted within 20 minutes. And he's like, wow, you're a member of Makrahanish. I'm a member of Makrahanish. And I'm building this golf course for two financiers, uh, Charles Schwab and George Roberts of KKR. And I need to do a deal with them. So if you can explain to me how the deal should be that I do with them, then you can come and be my intern. And I was like, yeah, sure, good deal. And uh, that's typical David. I mean, David's like, you know, I, I love David. And I haven't seen him for a long, long time, 20 years almost now, I think. But, uh, you know, he's helped me get into the business. He's always been very kind. And uh, so he let me be an apprentice. Uh, and uh, that's how I started off. So that's the, the, the long story how I got there. And then, you know, uh, to my surprise and to the surprise of my you know, friends, uh, I've been in the business for the last 20 years. Uh, so the seven-year itch hasn't happened yet. Uh, who knows? Maybe it will never happen. Maybe it will happen. And I'll do something else. I mean, if I ever do anything else, I could be a history professor. That would be something that I'd love. I read a lot about history and I can, I think I can teach. So, but maybe it's a bit late in my career to, to make that last switch. Maybe I'll just stick to golf architecture. From a golfing perspective, I believe you were a competitive field hockey player, first of all, that uh, sashayed into golf as opposed to vice versa. Yeah. Uh, yep. When did the golf bug first bite, Frank? Uh, it didn't really, to be honest, it, didn't, it started late. As I said, I was a, I was a very competitive hockey player. I played in the Dutch teams under 16 and 18. Um, so that didn't give much time for playing golf. I mean, basically, I was playing hockey three, four times, sometimes five times a week till I was 18. So I started golf when I was, I think I got my first set when I was 17, which was a set of blades uh, that 
Clay still drools over when he sees it. It's a Tommy Armour Pure Blades, and, and see, I was I use them once in a while just to see how bad I'm playing because if you you can miss hit balls with them amazingly. So um, yeah, so I started. I, it didn't bite me really in the beginning. It's uh, I went along with my parents. They were a member at a cult course uh, called Eindhoven, which was next. You know, we lived very close to it, so I played it when studying, and then I, I played when I came home. We would play golf together. Um, and uh, because I, by that time, had stopped playing hockey, I was fed up after my when I was eighteen. It just was too intensive. I wanted to just have a good student life and and, and enjoy life. Um, so I had time for playing golf, and then it really started playing more golf when I uh, had my first jobs. After I did my MBA, uh, I then started playing more intensively because, uh, it, as I said, it was one of the few when I was consultant as a banker. It was one of the few ways to relax, just really get your head empty. Plus, uh, because I changed jobs a couple of times, you then get the gardening leave, as it's called. You're not allowed to do anything for a month. And that's when, you know, if you look at my handicap, it made a couple of jumps down or, or drops down. So I think I played 24 for a long time. Then I had a gardening leave and I went down to 14. Then I had another gardening leave a couple of years later and then went down to nine. That's the best I ever was. Uh, you know, being a hockey player is not the best uh, startup to be a good golf player, to be honest. I mean, you you do everything wrong pretty much. The only good news is you hit the ball always, but that's the bad news because you always hit the ball, no matter what mistakes you make in your swing. You mentioned obviously the European Institute of Golf Course Architectures MSC program in Edinburgh. What can you tell us about the course and your uh, your duration of study in Edinburgh? You obviously enjoyed the experience. Yeah, Edinburgh was good. The class was good. Uh, you know, Edinburgh is a fun town. I mean. Uh, Again, this was the third time I was studying. So uh, by that time, I was pretty experienced in being a student. And what's good about Edinburgh, it's got, you know, it's a great town. Uh, you're, you know, the, the, you're, we had a great class uh, of very diverse people. I mean, we had some Swedes, we had some Americans, we had some Irish, English people. Uh, I was the only, con well, I was the only Dutchie. Uh, and uh, so we did a lot together as a class and obviously you're in the middle of a lot of interesting golf courses. So we, we spent half the time trying to learn stuff and the other half, well, three things. It was learning, drinking and, and, and playing golf. So that's a good combination. Um, the school itself was a bit, yeah, uh, how do you say it? It was, it was the, it was basically, believe it or not, it was a part of Edinburgh College of Arts. I went to a college of art. Um, and so we were kind of a strange group of, of, of students in that. Most people had beautiful tattoos and piercings, et cetera. And we were just walking around in golf attire, which was kind of weird. Um, and that was then part of uh, Harriet Watt, University Harriet Watt. Um, the program was set up and pretty much at that point together with Yale was the only real university program. Uh, and, and yeah, it's difficult to get a program like that going. Only seven people or eight people were attending. Um, it had some assistance. It wasn't really the European Institute of Golf Course Architects program. It was endorsed by them. But I remember when looking back, I mean, it was amazing. We didn't get much support from the European Institute. Um, you know, just one of the first things that you think there was no golf course that we could play at reduced rates or anything or, or visit, which is kind of weird. Uh, we had visiting well, we had visiting architects once in a while, um, and we had one professor. Uh, who was teaching us, uh, and I think we had, we all had mixed feelings about that setup. It, 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 let's say this way, academically, it wasn't the greatest thing. 
Uh, but it was a good it was a good way of getting into the business of learning what you need to learn. I mean, we we taught each other. The group taught each other more among each other than 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 we learned maybe from both the professor that we had or the uh, the visiting visiting architects. Uh, am I right in saying that you did your final dissertation on Harry Chaplin Colt and his design? It was one of the projects. Yeah, it was one of the projects that that, yeah. that I did. I, we had to write a, 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 a we had to write a, a piece on on something, and I did mine on Harry Colt because uh, by that point I started realizing, oh, hey, I grew up on a Colt course. That's pretty cool. So, and actually, hey, wow, the Netherlands had seven Colt courses. That's kind of unique given how small a country it is. So that kind of sparked like, oh, maybe that would be something to go and do uh, and, and spend some time on. So I, I did write a, a dissertation. It was too much of it. It was really a, a, a five, six pager or something like that on Colt. And, but it was, it was important because what, what I did is I just basically went through whatever Colt wrote and I just basically just made a long list of bullet points of the key points he was making in his, his arguments. And then I started you know, sort of correlating the points. And that's how I got to like the seven points that I, you know, that you've seen no doubt in the World Oven presentation on what are Colt's main issue, main points. And then you start looking at, do, do, I, do I see what he's writing in his work? And yeah, most of the time you do see it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, yeah, that's where it started. And um, obviously that, that, was, that, was, that was helpful. And then it was helpful that we had the trip. We made a trip with the whole class to, uh, to London and, we visited Swinley, among other uh, courses at Woking, et cetera. But Swinley asked us, oh, we got a problem with the fourth hole. Why does it, if all the students want to submit their, you know, their solution, how to solve it, then we'll pick a winner. And I was the lucky one to win it. So that helps. And uh, I guess that's where it then all started. In terms of those seven points that you mentioned in relation to uh, Colt's uh, approach to design, it might be useful just to briefly restate them just for the benefit of the listeners. Okay, well, let's see if I can do them from memory. I mean, basically it is work, uh, work with the natural features of the site. You'd think, well, that's pretty obvious, but if you look at some of the work that was done before Colt, you'd see square yeah, mounds or triangular mounds and, and, and very unnatural looking things. So Colt was basically saying, don't blow up the landscape, use the landscape that's there. Then the second point was, if you, you know, if you have to make changes, make them look natural. Now, that's again, something that Tom Simpson also said, you know, this is how you should build a hill, not like this, but like that. Uh, so the base should be long enough, etc. So they were really thinking, you know, golf courses should look natural. And, you know, if you think of it, that's, that's a, that's an interesting point because architects before them didn't think about that golf courses needed to be looking natural. Okay. Next point would be, uh, Effectively, the third point was uh, design, uh, how do you call it, make, route, route the golf course, uh, creating, you know, infinite variety. Uh, that's, that's one of the key things, making routings, how you lay out a golf course, create variety, the type of shots that people are going to be facing, create memorability. Uh, so if you play a cold course, how many, you know, often you'll find that you'll remember 12 holes out of 18. And there are a lot of courses where you do not remember 12 holes out of 18. So that's, that's part of that. Number four would be, uh, uh, how do you, uh, how do you design strategically? Uh, so design, uh, force the player to think strategically with their tee shots or their shots. And effectively, that's that's one of the most important things. One of the key things we also use at Royal Dublin, which is, you know, asymmetry of defense. Create create 
create positions whereby people have to think. If they don't think, they're going to play worse than if they do think. Um, then you have uh, design severe for the scratch player, but sympathetic for the bogey player, uh, which is 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 uh, number five. And that's that's another one that's very uh, how do you call it typical cult in that before him a lot of the architects were the uh, the famous uh, the famous professionals who if anything would rather build rather penal to show how good they were and how bad everybody else was and, and Cole was much more like well everybody from the best player to the worst player should be able to play my course and the way you do that is that you make it your specific things difficult for the good players but avoidable for the weak players uh, which is the asymmetry of defense that we talked about um yeah and i think i'm missing two but i'd have to look up what the other two were uh i'm sure we'll we'll, we'll i can do we'll, we'll get to that later i'm sure we'll recap yep. Listen, before we get stuck into the main event and have a have a deeper dive into the royal dublin revision maybe a little history for listeners would undoubtedly be useful the royal dublin golf club was founded in 1885 and is the second oldest golf club on the island of ireland after initial quick stops at the Phoenix Park and Cush Point in Sutton, the club moved to its current location at Dollymount in 1889. The original course at Dollymount was routed by two Scotsmen, club founder John Lumsden and Tom Gilroy. Bernard Darwin mentions in his book The Golf Courses of the British Isles of the ongoing intercessions of one Cecil Barcroft, the secretary manager and in-house designer, who also happened to be an acquaintance of Harry Colt and a devotee of John Lowe. Royal Dublin was requisitioned by the British Army for troop training purposes during the Great War, and significantly much of the internal contour was reportedly flattened to make way for rifle ranges, offices and accommodation. The course was returned to the golf club in 1919, whereby Cecil Barcroft recommended Harry Colt as the man best placed to reinvigorate the War Savage course, thanks to a £10,000 payment from the War Office. Secretary Barcroft, the Greenkeeper Charles Davidson, and indeed Anthony Babington, would play key roles in facilitating, building and overseeing the Colt revisions. I understand that Colt's partner, John Morrison, may have provided advice to the course after World War II, Certainly during the 1970s, Eddie Hackett was retained to develop and redesign a new two-tiered green on the old seventh hole. And as we know, Dr. Hawtrey revised the course extensively from 2004 to 2006, while also completing additional ad hoc projects for the club over the intervening period until the semi-retirement and CDP's appointment in 2019. Before jumping into the specifics of the Royal Dublin Project, Frank, I'm keen to try and understand what Royal Dublin's brief was in terms of uh, originally, I think your initial visit with Clates was back in November 2019, is that correct? Yeah, I'm sure, uh, I, I, you're, I'm sure you're, you're correct. I mean, it was definitely, um, I think we, I think I'd been to the golf course before the visit with Clates. So we, we mm. visited the course, I think at least once before. Um, and then Clayton was, I think the second visit he joined us. Um, the brief was really, I think in, in, in short, it was said that the members were unhappy with the bunkers uh, for various reasons, you know, uh, 
a lot of the older members found it difficult to get in and out of the bunkers. They found it difficult to play out of the bunkers because they were very deep and very pot-oriented. And in general, people felt that the golf course was very difficult, uh, maybe too difficult for the average man. This comes back to the, the point we were saying, designed severe for the scratch player and sympathetic for the bogeyman. So uh, the, the general feeling was the golf course had become too hard for the bogeyman. And that was driven by deep, difficult to get in and out of, difficult to play in and out of, uh, and quite the ubiquitous uh, amounts of bunkers uh, on the golf course. That was, I think, the brief that we got. And the brief was, okay, we would like to know what would you do with our bunkers? How would you redesign them so they would be easier to get in and out of? How would you design them that, you know, people have more fun playing the golf course again? And um, can you make, you know, whilst keeping in mind the cold heritage uh, and is what we have the cold heritage? Because, of course, uh, Martin Hawtrey is, 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 was... You know, I, I think we share that both of us are, are seen as cold experts. So, um, you know, uh, that, that was the question then. Is this cold or could we make it more cold, et cetera? Now, you have to keep in mind the brief that Martin got when he was doing his work was make this course tougher, longer, because tournaments, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, the, the sign of the time in those days. I wasn't there, so that's what I've been told. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I was told. And I think... Yeah, he did a good job in, in making it tougher and, and longer and, and more difficult. The question was, was that the good brief? Was that what the club should have done? And I think what we've done now is we've kept the difficulty for the good players, but that's what we were trying to do. So our message from the beginning was, okay, we've looked at the course. We think you have too many bunkers, and we, we will look historically to see if, if indeed there were less bunkers in the past. We think the bunkers are very small. They, they do have somewhat of a sand face, but we think, you know, the original bunkers probably would have been bigger and probably that changed because they had too much wind blow out of them. And we definitely thought that, that the course had too many bunkers and they, they lacked a, what we call a symmetry of defense. That means everything was defended rather than just more one side than the other, which then makes it, and what that does is it makes it very difficult for the weaker to average to weaker player because they will always be in a bunker. There's no way they cannot be in a bunker when you play around, especially when there's, uh, having been on the site now for many, many weeks, it's very windy. Even for links course, it's very windy. And that means that, yeah, it just basically, if you put bunkers everywhere, people are going to be a lot in bunkers. And then in some sense, part of what you want to do is you want to create people, you want to have, you know, you, people should enjoy playing golf. I mean, uh, having been a lot on your golf course, I've met a lot of your members and your members are passionate about golf, you know, as much as anywhere else in the world. And, for them not to like golf because of too many bunkers is, is a pity. That's really, and that's what we try to remedy in some sense. You know, I was fortunate to, to recently receive a copy of, of a report that Dr. Hawtrey submitted mm -hmm. to the club after his initial walkabout at Royal Dublin in 2001 and feel that the following excerpt may be interesting. So just to understand how much coat was actually left by the time yeah. that Dr. Hawtrey put his eyes on it. So Dr. Hartley writes, the format out and back is traditional with welcome switchbacks at 4 and 15. The layout is said to be a reorganization by Harry Colt, but through constraints of sight, exhibit nothing of Colt's love for setting off in new directions, a frequent characteristic of his remodeled layouts. Muirfield, of course, is a shining example, but a classic example is the 7th at County Sligo. I may stand corrected, but my suspicion is that the original layout was not changed vastly, a good many tea sites and old greens or green sites perhaps reused. 
and Colt may have confined his work to redesign of most of the greens in the back nine and the systems of ditches through the site. In the first nine holes, I can see Colt only clearly at hole four and perhaps on greens three and eight. His authorship is much clearer on the last five or six holes. You know, it's interesting. I've heard you speak about atrophy uh, before in terms of golf courses over time. And it certainly would appear that what Colt had in the ground certainly over the years had been stretched and tinkered with and, and whatever else. And there may not have been a huge amount left by the time Dr. Hawtrey actually did his work. But I suppose, unfortunately, with that fire that we had in, in the 40s, we, uh, we lost a lot of, of, uh, of, of records that, that may be of, uh, of interest in terms of that particular conversation. Yeah. Specifically looking at Cole's bunkering, Frank, um, I had Adam Lawrence on, um, who's writing, obviously, a new book on Harry Cole, yeah. which I believe is due to be released soon. We sort of spoke briefly about Cole's evolving bunker yeah. style. And Adam seemed to think that, in general, you could kind of put it into early Cole's, mid-career Cole and late Cole. So I'm just wondering if we can maybe contrast the bunker style, perhaps, that we Well, this, this, it's interesting. I mean, I put Adam, I know Adam for a long time, obviously, and I put Adam in touch really in the beginning with Paul Turner, who, before Adam started on the book, Paul was working on a book on, on, on Colt. But because Paul's a soft, how do you call it, a chip engineer, it's, it's like a hobby, and he didn't have time enough for it. So the two of them got together, and... Paul did a seminar, he helped me put together a seminar on Colt specifically early on, like 15, 16 years ago. And he was the first one who came up with three periods, early period, middle period, late period. And effectively, the early period is up to World War II. What he would do is he'd have big bunkers, simple shapes would be like either oval, well, basically triangles or big square areas, big bunkers, rough edges, unsophisticated cutouts really uh, think of the big well st george st george's hill uh hole number eight the famous picture of that saint clue has has some famous pictures like that early work at porto de Hierro. so that's the early 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 phase and uh, then you get the roaring 20s and in the roaring 20s he used more bunkers they were somewhat smaller and a lot of noses. So the, this is the period where noses started making a big appearance. Huh? So Moore Park had that. Uh, Presbury has that. Uh, there's some other, you know, courses that have that element. Um, and then, then the crisis hit, the big depression, and uh, no money, nothing really happening. So they had to cut back. Uh, and effectively, that's when uh, the style became, uh, we, we definitely got a lot less bunkers. We got less ostentious noses, et cetera. But he did keep the frilly edges in there. So it became the final style that you see uh, was uh, one that uh, almost was close to Simpson-ish and how some of the shapes looked like. So those would be the three stages. And I think uh, what, we would, what I would say is the, 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 what, we, what we're looking at for Dublin is really a mix of uh, it's pre-noses, uh, but not as big as some of the work that you see inland on the inland course because you just all the sand would blow away. So it's simple shapes, uh, some irregularity in the edges, not too big because otherwise you'd lose all the bunkers, uh, but no noses really. His bunkers generally were characterized by sand flash faces, yeah. yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the characteristics are 
sand flash, so they're very visible. You'd have a, a, a top vertical edge on top that would be irregular. Uh, so it wouldn't be a straight line. It would be sort of weaving. It would be, you know, either a stacked sods or if the soil was heavy enough, it would just be a vertical uh, edging of the of that edge. And, um, you know, if you take a cross section, it would be the, the entrance would be slightly sloping down, then it'll be a flat bit and then it would go steeply up. And that's that's what how this, the bunkers would look like. So it's it's not very difficult. And the key thing then is to make each individual bunker just look a little bit different from the other ones, uh, which is the variety part. I've often heard you refer to the need to leave your ego at the door when it comes to restoration work. How easy is that to do? And, and what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, I've been saying that for a long time. And it's good to see so, some of my colleagues are now also using that phrase in interviews. So it's good uh, as long as they really do it. Um, what you what that is, is that um, it, every, every artist wants to do creative things. And there are multiple ways that you can be creative. You can be creative within certain confines or boundary conditions, or you can be creative, just do your own thing. Um, what I mean with your ego at the door, leave your ego at the door, is when you do a renovation, a restoration of a, a, a really good architect, a Simpson, a, you know, a Colt, a Fowler, and you have the data and you know what it looked like. Uh, and, and then what you should do is just put back what was there, unless you have a very good reason not to put it back. And what... What I tend to see is that some, what you see is that in some places, well, you go to a golf course and you, you, you see seven greens and you get to the eighth green and say, hey, architect X was here. Calling card. Well, you just say, hey, that was built by so-and-so. And, and you'll have a client look at you and say, how do you know? You say, well, because it, it, it's a, a green that so-and-so always builds. Uh, um, and that is not, in my view, it's not good. I mean, if you're going to do something on a, on a cold course, it should look like a cold green, not like a Mr. X, architect Mr. X green. And that's, you know, I think that's the biggest mistake that I've seen in the recent years is that people, yeah, I mean, if you're a very good architect, you might think you're as good as Colt was. And you say, well, I'm just improving his, his work by doing my green here. And uh, yeah, I guess I disagree with that. Maybe if we take a look at your process, and I guess in general terms, you might introduce us to that process that you follow in preparation for an RFP. Royal Dublin is probably a good example to use, as I'm a little bit more okay with that one than uh, than any other. So what sort of considerations are most important at, at RFP stage in terms of trying to get yourself as part of the consideration set as well? Well, obviously, the first important thing is to get invited. And we were uh, mm -hmm. we were lucky that we were invited because Pete, you know, I know that the, uh, the the club had talked to some people and just asked who should we talk to, and obviously we got good credentials from a number of cold clients in the, in the UK. So that was good. So you you have to be you have to be in the deal flow, as we say in the old banking uh, uh, saying is you have to be in the deal flow. So you have to be invited. And then when you're invited, what you do is you start looking at, okay, how original is this course? What's there? What was there? Uh, what's different? How do we have pictures on the ground, how the course used to look like? What, you know, so you say, what, are, what was there? What is there now? What's the delta between the two? Why did it change? Well, in the case of Royal Dublin, that was very clear. We knew that, that obviously Martin Hawtrey had been brought in with a specific brief and he'd done things. Um, and we liked certain things. We didn't like other things. 
that always happens if you have, uh, you know, and that's you no know, nothing bad or wrong. I mean, if Martin looks at my work, he's going to like certain things and not like other things. But we basically had that. So you basically say, well, we like this. We don't like that so much. We would change this, that, and the other based on what we see um, from the past. Now, in the case of Royal Dublin, that was difficult because there weren't, like, there are places where we have aerial pictures from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. So you basically say, look, this is the evolution of the place over time. We have pictures on the ground. We have drawings of the, you know, have writings of the architects. This is what they wanted. In the case of Royal Dublin, there wasn't that much. We, we found uh, old aerials from around the wartime, which clearly showed bigger bunkers and less bunkers. But well, that wasn't a surprise. We spoke to a number of people, uh, some of the, you know, let's say it this way, some of the, won't mention names, but one of the, the top players of Ireland who knew the course from way back and who didn't like some of the changes and explained what they liked, what was there before, and what they didn't like so much about what, it, what there is now. We use that. Um, and uh, yeah, then basically, then you, you use that to form an opinion and then you get questions by the club. And the club asks us like, well, uh, what would you do about the bunkers? Well, we had a clear idea. We wanted them to be more like cold, bigger, you know, the buildup as we described, probably you needed liner. We'll get to that later on because, and you probably needed coarser sand than that you had now, otherwise all the sand will blow out. Um, we also knew that we had too many bunkers. And then when we got case studies, we were asked, I think, to present the, uh, what is the 11th hole, the, the, the long par five to the right, which I think had 13 bunkers or 11 bunkers or God knows that sounds about right, yeah. Mm, lot, plenty of bunkers. And basically what we our, our response was, basically, guys, this is what you do when you have no clue. I mean, when you don't know what to do, just throw bunkers at it. And, and that's the wrong approach. What you should do is say, okay, how many bunkers does this place need? And what we did is we went back to, I have to count, to one, two. I think we went back to five bunkers in total. Uh, two in the carry. Uh, oh, sorry, two in the, in the tee shot. And then three, basically, for the shot either the second or the third shot into the green. And especially the, the one before last is the one that everybody's going to hate because that's exactly where most mm -hmm. people want to put their ball. Funnily enough, Frank, there's a sweet spot of a handicap, low single figure, probably, uh, as you rightly point out, they can't play the hit and hope shot anymore. It's for them to reach the green, and I'm including myself in this particular yep. uh, bucket, if you like. To reach the green, you've got to have a, a fair wind behind you, and you need to. all you need to do is potentially hope, but hit the ball over the ridge and see if it got up on the green. That has obviously taken that shot out of the equation. But, you know, you've plenty of choice there. You can go short, you can go long if you have the carry, left yeah, or right. You just can't do the shot that you were used to. And, uh, yeah, we've had, it's funny, there's a course in the Netherlands where I've done work for the last also 15 years. And there's one bunker on the 18th hole, which is exactly, it's a dog leg to the left. It's a very difficult hole, long par four. And we, what I did is I put a bunker right exactly where the best players want to hit their tee, tee shot. And it's been for 15 years, <laughs> every time I meet a single handicapper, uh, low handicapper, they're going to talk about that bunker. And uh, it's like you said, you, you know, it's because it's, it's, it, 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 it hits their comfort zone. They're like, that's what they were used to doing. They can't do that anymore. And now they're like, what, you know, but I want to do that. Yeah, but you can't, you know, just get, get over it, mm. you know. In terms of, of the member engagement side of things, I know you're, you're a fan of Tom Simpson and uh, Tom thought that most golfer criticism of architecture was based on what he called invincible ignorance. 
I'm going to be a little kinder and suggest that, as I have found out, there are at least initially many unknown unknowns when it comes to the subjects of architecture, agronomy, and indeed history. In general terms, how important is an accompanying education piece in your engagement process with club members? Yeah, I think it's very important. I mean, I, I, I always see a lot of what I do as missionary work. And not that I'm religious or I think missionaries, maybe I'm not that keen on what maybe the work the missionaries did. I think it was no doubt very well meant and everything. But what I mean with missionary work is basically you go out and you try to educate people and you try to, because uh, I truly think a lot of people just don't know what they're talking about. So Simpson definitely was right. And, um, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of things I have no clue about, but the key thing is to know what you know, and what you don't know. Uh, it's the known unknowns, you know, exactly what you're alluding to. And I think what you need to do is you need to educate people so that they realize, ooh, okay, this was a bit more complex than I thought it was, and I really don't know that much about it. So it's good that I'm, I should probably either read a bit more about it or understand that I should listen to experts. You know? And then, of course, you need to pick the right experts or the ones that you like, et cetera. Um, and that's what we do a lot. We explain why asymmetry of defense is important. You know, some people might say, well, but you're taking bunkers away. It's going, to, it's going to be too easy. Well, maybe, but probably not. Let's look at why it wouldn't be easier. You know, just explain things. If you explain things, you take people through, then they will understand it. And some people don't want to understand, and some people you'll never convince. And that's especially when we get to the subject of trees. That's that's one where which is very emotive. Um, and But... You know, we've done this many, many times. It's not nuclear physics, a lot of what we're saying. So you just need to understand why things, certain things happen like they happen and, and then explain it and then we can prove it. I mean, one of the key things is people will say, oh, it's going to be too easy. And I would say, okay, we'll bet a good, you know, cask of wine, uh, you know, for this because I'll win it. You know, we'll just see what the average strokes are this year and then we'll do it for next year and the year after. And then if it's easier, I'll pay, I'll give you a good, you know, set of bottles of wine and otherwise I'll get, and it's, I always win. I'm getting slightly ahead of myself here, but there was a, a member question from uh, a very happy member, Rashi, but he's wondering just on that particular difficulty question, whether or not you have a view as to what might happen to the uh, stroke index of the golf course. The stroke index. Mm -hmm. In terms of the difficulty. Oh, you mean slope? Sorry, the slope. Beg your pardon. Beg your pardon. Slope. Say, because slope. the stroke index, I couldn't care less. I yeah. whatever. I always when people say to me, "What do you think of the stroke index?" I say, "I have no idea, and I don't care because who cares? It's, it's yeah. been proven statistically that whatever stroke index you throw at the course, it doesn't influence scoring at all." So, but on mm -hmm. on um, on the stroke, you know, what will happen to the course slope and course and slope rating? Um, depends on how people measure it. If they use the USGA method, who knows what will happen? Uh, typically speaking, what we like to do is we like to have asymmetry of defense, firm greens, lots of short grass around the greens, and wide fairways. If you do that, the American USGA system will tell you that the golf course is going to get a lot easier, which is not true because it doesn't get much easier, but that's what their analog system tells you. Um, so we are big proponents of using big data, which is just get 10,000 rounds and then determine how much easier or harder it's become. A good example is, again, a course I did in the Netherlands where what we did is exactly this. We changed the green surrounds, made the greens firmer. We made more short grass. We had you know, less wet, wider fairways. They came in, did a USGA course and slope rating, said, oh, course is much easier. Everybody's, what happened then was everybody's handicap went up. 
which is kind of weird. Huh? So if the course is easier, why does everybody's handicap go up? Okay, that was the first thing that was kind of strange. But everybody, yeah, oh, well, the, the, the golf authorities have, have determined it, so it's fine. But then the interesting thing was they played the Dutch amateur there. They played it three times before I did the works, and then they did it three times after I did the work. They, the score, winning scores before we did the work was minus 15 over, say, minus 15, minus 16 over four rounds. After the work, the winning score was zero. Wow. So we went back to the authorities and said, that's kind of strange because you said the golf course became a lot easier and we're 16 strokes harder when you do the amateur. And what they then did is they applied a corrector factor and everybody's handicaps came down again. So basically, let's be blunt, basically it doesn't work for all golf courses, the USGA system. It probably works for, you know, Parkland courses with not too much wind, with not a lot of roll but it doesn't work for the courses that we have because they have to, they, they have to fudge it to make it work effectively. And the best way to make it work would be to use, uh, would be to use big data. But again, there's resistance to that because there's whole committees doing the course of slope rating in the analog way, and they would lose their jobs if you would do big data. So that's my cynical way of looking at it, but I've gone through this a number of times. So, the, the long answer is in the short term, if the Irish Golf Federation or whoever our union uses USGA course slope rating, what will happen is when they use it, they're going to basically say, oh, the course has become easier, which is not the case. The advantage of that, the bad thing is your handicap will go up. The good news is you'll win every outmatch to any competitor. <laughs> okay. Okay, so uh, so we'll have to wait to yeah, see what exactly. happens to that. But I suspect Golf Ireland will use the USGA. Yeah. Uh, model and uh, anyway we may have well, to have a debate uh, with them, have a debate with them and say that, yeah. that you know this is a, a known problem well whoever in the club deals with them this is a known mistake the usga does when you have fast and firm greens and you have a lot of short grass and you, you have less bunkers you have wider fairways that you know if anything how do they incorporate for wind etc on a site like you know royal dublin because it can make such you know obviously if you only play if you only hand in cards when it's wind still, you're going to play a very different handicap on Royal Dublin than if you play when it's everyday heavy wind, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. You worked hand in glove with Dargolf yeah. and Graham Darcy yeah. particularly. Uh, interestingly, just as an aside, Graham was the lead shaper uh, on this project and actually has been an ever-present at Royal Dublin, I think, starting with Saul Golf on the Hawtree revisions from 2004. Yeah. Um, and obviously dipping his toe back in the water on various other projects uh, through through the years. So I know when we spoke on on site some weeks ago, you compared Dar's work extremely favorably with uh, another colleague of yours, uh, Connor Walsh, who you partnered extensively in projects such as the Addington and New Zealand. When working with a new contractor such as Dar, uh, what difficulties can materialize with uh, someone you don't perhaps have as as strong a relationship as you have? Well, with I, I think, you know, it's always hard to compare. I mean, the, the, Graham and, and Connor are two different people, different skill sets, uh, different, you know, I, I think it's hard to compare, but both, let, let's be honest, both of them are very excellent shapers. And I think being a good shaper is more than just shaping ground. Uh, I think communication is important. Reliability is important. Uh, you know, uh, basically you have to be both very good uh, in terms of, of creativity, but also good in efficiency. I've worked with shapers that were extremely talented in, in making beautiful things, but that would take forever 
And sometimes you work with people that are very fast, but you don't have them do anything that's too finicky or too creative because, you know, they're very good at doing things efficiently, but not so creative. Now, the best are ones that do both. So they're quick and they're very, they're very good. The third element, which is important, is do they sometimes do things that you didn't specifically tell them? And because if you tell them, this is what I want, they'll do it. But the best shapers are ones, are ones that basically surprise you. You know, and, and uh, because they'll do things and you say, and sometimes, you know, one in 10, you'll say, oh, I didn't like what you did there. Can you, let's try to do this. But five or six out of 10 times, it will be, you'll be, wow, that's cool what you did there. You know, because you can't always be there. You want to be there all the time, but sometimes you won't be there. And then you want to make sure. And then the best ones are the ones where you basically, are, you know, most of the time are very happy with what they do. And then the final one is the temperament, uh, which is, uh, you know, there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be like something goes against what you expected. Weather's horrible. They're under pressure. They're not making enough money out of it. Maybe they're losing money on the project. And then all of a sudden, you know, things get more tense because everybody has to make a living. And it's how do you solve these situations that then, you know, create a situation where you're happy to work with somebody longer term, you know? And I've worked with, you know, most contractors are, are, pretty good because they want to they understand this but it's some people are easier to work with than others yourself and your colleague henrik hilgert supervised the jobs i uh, sorry the job shall i say how many visits did you uh, b- between you make have to make yeah just for work i just counted it between henrik and myself we made i think 12 or 13 visits so it was pretty quick you know pretty much every week uh, starting in october going all the way to feb and I would say per week, we would on average be there. Some weeks I was there four days, some weeks I was there two days. But on average, I think we were three days a week there. And obviously, the Lynx team, led by Alan yeah. Hammond and Mark Burke, were obviously keeping a, a watching brief on it as well. Alan was involved with Bruce Hepner, I believe, on some bunker renovation work at his time at Canterbury Golf Club in Ohio. Yep. Uh, so he'd, he'd seen it before. So do you think that experience that Alan had sort of fed well in the input and, and sort of designing for a, a maintainable surface? Well, I think he's an excellent, he's a very good greenkeeper. He's, he's again, what you would like is he, 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 he has opinions but listens and is very comfortable. He's not in, insecure. I mean, basically, the, it's, it's hard working with somebody who's insecure, worried, and and doesn't know really what he or she wants and and you know alan knows what he wants he's been through something like this before um and he's open to listen he wasn't very keen on a liner in the beginning but i think we convinced him you know about why that would work in this in this particular case um i think he was very comfortable yeah he was very keen on saying we want to do it all in one go 18 holes in one go which we were happy to do but he convinced the club to do that which i think was a good one and um yeah just in general i mean if 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 you've got an experienced person who's relaxed and yeah, it doesn't mean he he wasn't working hard but you know the whole team was working hard and, and to be honest you have amazing playing surfaces i mean most of my clients i mean you and port monarch together are probably the the, the best i've seen and, 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 and I see a lot of golf courses. So I always tell people, go and look at there, you know, come and have a look. Now, maybe your climate is ideal for maintaining, you know, fescue and, and, and good grasses. But still, yeah, I think it's amazing. So they do an amazing job. The difficulty of such a project is always that, you know, people are looking forward to it. you got a mess. And then they expect a week after the mess has been, you know, finished, that it's going to be perfect playing surfaces again. 
Well, it doesn't work like that. And I think that's the, the difficulty for, for teams like that of Allen is, and that's what I always keep telling people is, is that's when they need the support of the membership. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be a while before everything's perfect and that's normal. And it's not because he's doing a great job, you know, and it's not his fault. It, you know, if anything, it's our fault that it was a mess. And, and that's, that's key. And I think, you know, again, he's very, he was quite relaxed about that. And uh, hopefully your membership is, is understanding and smart enough. Uh, and, uh, you know, by the time we get to the middle of summer, hopefully people will then get a good sense of how the final product really looks like and plays. Yeah, we're kind of in that uh, twilight yeah. zone between seeing the light and, and coming from the darkness. But certainly from a visual perspective, it's really starting to, to take shape with the, the new sand and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, there are, there are very, very many, many excited members to see how it's actually going to play and how, how, we, how we have to learn a different way of playing it. Just wondering, Frank, did you, did you make many amendments in the field? I mean, obviously, from, you obviously drew plans up in terms of uh, getting them approved by the members. I, I certainly remember you did a slight adjustment to the bunkering on 16. Maybe that was the first hole that you, you took a look at. No, I don't think we did too much change there. I think the only one that we we, we had one, I think there was a members meeting on one bunker that we wanted to add, which was the big bunker on number uh, eight. Eight, yeah. And uh, we then said, well, we don't want to put in a bunker that we, and, and the, for some reason there had been sort of, previous incidents, not incidents, previous occasions whereby something had been promised to the membership and then they changed it and they didn't communicate it to the membership. So that's why we went back. And we were very, I think, compared to some other places, we were actually very strict with staking to our design uh, in general. Now, every individual bunker, we didn't, you know, we didn't go in and, and GPS exactly the, the, the size of the bunker. We basically said the work areas were GPS. And then we kind of knew what the average sizes were, but we then worked bespoke in the field to basically create the best bunkers that we could get. And the club, luckily, there was very was relaxed. I, I guess, like anything, everybody was very, was a bit nervous before it started, which I can understand because you don't know what you're going to get. And I think when we had done 16, 17, people relaxed a bit because they said, okay, if it's going to be like this, then it's fine. At this juncture, I think it might be opportune to explore a number of holes on the property to see what was there originally, how it developed over time, and the revisions that you have implemented. I will include a link to the sh in the show notes to the original CDP proposal, so listeners, should they so wish, can obviously follow along with pictures as well as sound, as it were. I'll also post a series of pictures that illustrate certain new features that augment the challenge, both visually and from a playability perspective, that I'm sure we'll touch upon. The first hole I'd like to take a look at, Frank, is the third hole, which effectively is known historically as the Alps hole. I know this hole prompted a bit of a change of mind during your design deliberations. Perhaps you might talk us through where we got to eventually with, with the new bunker scheme. Yeah, well, I think what it, it's a good one because I, I don't really have an answer why we didn't. I mean, if you look at the original bunkering that was there, it's like almost like a crocodile beak. Uh, how do you explain it? It's like almost like a V-shaped set of, you know, five bunkers that were put in front of a green. Um, and what I, you know, basically what I, my original design, the first take, the first draft was to keep the bunkering as it was closer to the green and just rearrange it and make it more asymmetric. Um, but it was probably the most, 
intriguing and definitely the most memorable set of bunkers on the course, the original set of bunkers. So when we kept looking at it, I was like, well, it's kind of a shame. It would be really stupid, not, not stupid. It would be really a shame not to bring this back because we know it was there. It was very different from what it is now. And probably it was taken out because, uh, well, I don't know why it was taken out. Uh, maybe because people felt the green wasn't defended enough and it was maybe the bunkers were too far ahead of the green because what effectively the new set of bunkers, the existing set of bunkers were really around the green. It was a short, it's a relatively short hole when you're playing it with the wind, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, against the wind is a whole different animal. Mm -hmm. You're laughing? No, I am laughing. I hit a, 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 an atrocious tee shot into the wind there last, uh, yeah. last Saturday. It's a different hole from back in the top of the top of the hill there on the left hand I'm sure side. It is. I'm sure it is. And and yeah. so effectively, I think in the past it was playing as a longer hole. And when it was a longer hole, uh, you would basically, you know, obviously by putting the bunkers further ahead of the green, you were playing more of a bumper run shot into it. And uh, well, the green is actually very suited to to play a bumper run shot in still. And we thought that's that's when we changed our mind and said, well, let's bring that back. It will be a very memorable set of uh, bunkers, kind of a unique. I haven't seen many other places where Cole did this. Um, and uh, that in itself is already a reason to put it back in. And the club was happy to do it. And uh, yeah, maybe this hole will become a bit easier when there's no wind and you whack it with your driver, you know, to within an easy wedge. But, you know, then maybe this is the one which gives the old boys a bit more of a challenge. But, you know, I, I'm not a huge proponent of signature holes. However, I think this is now a real contender in terms of the visual of that second shot. And obviously, the, the green side is set sort of beside the, the curly jar, the, the, the green keeping compound, which is, which is an old stone wall. It just, it just, it just it sits beautifully in there with the, with the bunkers as contrast. I think it's sort of, I would call it a North Berwick type of hole or a Prestwick type of hole. You know, it's old fashioned. You would never build one like this with, you know, with the wall next to it. But just think of all the weird things that could happen to your ball. I mean, you could whack one into the wall, which could, you know, <laughs> I once made a, 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 I once made a, a, an eagle on a par four where I, I shanked it into the trees and it, it shot onto the green and went into the hole. Well, you could do something like that here on this hole as well with, you know, where it bounces off the, the wall or I, I like holes like this that are, are quirky and are strange. That doesn't always make it the best under all circumstances, a fair and stern test. No, but it, I, I think it's got a lot of character. The next hole I'd like to take a look at Frank is the fifth hole which uh, before the CDP works had three bunkers, one yeah. green side, two kind of in uh, maybe 80 to 100 yards short of the green, both left and right. Yeah. Um, the feedback from CDP was it's difficult enough without any bunkers. Yeah. Why, pray tell, did you decide to proffer that particular advice? I, I, a good question. I don't know. I, I think I had that feeling the first time I walked the hole already. Plus, you, what you want to do is you want to create, again, create variety. Yeah, you, you know, when you play Royal Dublin and you sit down with the guest afterwards, how many holes do they remember? You know, what's the fifth one of the holes that they would remember? Well, probably not, but uh, they would probably remember the fourth. They would probably remember, you know, 16, 17, 18. Um, maybe they'd remember number, I don't know which other holes. You probably know better than me which other holes they would remember. But it wouldn't probably be number five. And I think the fact that you now just take out all the bunkers, but also the work that we've done around the green, 
which makes it, it's almost like a type of thing that you see at a couple of holes at Sillith, where you play into a green, you think you're safe, and you just missed it left, in this case left, and Sillith sometimes left and right, and you all of a sudden you're down in a hole four meters down, you know, because you didn't see there was a hollow there. And that's what we're created at five. Uh, by taking that bunker out, it's become actually harder. Again, it's a good mm -hmm. example of the USGA ruling. Uh, slope, course and slope rating, they'll probably say it's become easier. It's actually become harder. Yeah. So I think it's, it's sometimes you make these decisions not even based on, 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 it's not like we made a long calculation and we came up, well, it shouldn't have a bunker. I think I walked it the first time I said, I think it would be ever without a bunker. And, and Clates works the same way. You have this feeling. Um, and then, yeah, if everybody says, yeah, I see what you're saying. And sometimes you're wrong. And sometimes, you know, most ho hopefully more times you're right than you're wrong. So that's, that, that was the background. Yeah, I, I can make it more sophisticated, but that was kind of how we got to this. But, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, standing on the fairway with a, you're, you're playing your approach shot, I think you've more to think about now, even though there's less up there, because you've got short grass, you've got connectivity with the sixth fairway, and actually, I think the newly contoured areas there on the left-hand side, where the bunker used to be, thinking about the fact that you have that runoff, and if you don't get it right, it actually causes more psychological stress than the pot bunker that was there in the first place. Absolutely. But that's that's what I was saying. It's it's become harder because what you find is, for good players who who think, if you're going to think more, you're going to make more mistakes. That's what the famous Pete Dye quote, get them thinking, then they're in trouble. Well, as, as Harry Bradshaw, the old head pro in Port Marnock, used to say when asked, what is your ideal recipe for a golfer? A man with big hands and no brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that was, that's kind of harsh, but I think it can hurt having too much of a brain and, and definitely using it and being insecure. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like definitely. But so I think, I think, you know, five and and the left side of five is a good example we talked about graham and about a shaper that does stuff my my task what i told him is take it away and don't make it look like one big slope mm -hmm. that's what he did and i think it's not like i've designed that in every square meter you know every inch and, and said go like this go like that no he he took a first stab i said i like this don't like that took a second yeah. stab said oh you're almost there took a third stab and it was done but it's almost like there's a half plateau there and it kind of just then yeah, yeah. bleeds down into the, the, the great area for the sixth fairway. Yeah. I, I can't wait to see how that plays. Yeah, well, it will be interesting because sometimes you'll be on that plateau. Sometimes, if, yeah. sometimes you won't. It all depends on where the flag is. Yeah. That's definitely the up and down that will be tricky. Yeah, but it's it's even more so it's, it's recommending that draw shot. And, uh, you know, if you don't quite get that right, you could be out over the fence on the right-hand side in terms of out of bounds. So it's... Uh, it's, uh, if the wind blows, I, again, I've, I've played, I've played twice, I think, and uh, mm -hmm. both times it was very windy. And uh, yeah, it's just, I'm just a handicap. I'm a handicap ten hacker, and and for me, it's all I can eat, you know. And I need to move forward in the tees, even though I'm a long hitter. I, I, I yeah, it, it, it's a tough course if it blows. But mm -hmm. the fun thing is, you got a lot of short grass around the greens, and and I mean, you're going to be, I mean, your your members are good short game players most likely because they get so much opportunity to practice so many different short shots that that's amazing some of them are very good at, te at texas wedge yeah yeah nothing wrong nothing wrong yeah. with that yeah yeah maybe frank if we take a look at the eighth hole yeah. obviously that had been a par five before dr yeah. hawtrey revi revised it into a par four 
you might let us know what happened on eight and how your thoughts evolved through the construction period. Well, eight is one of the most picturesque holes because you're looking, you know, from the tee, you're looking at the hole, the two mounds sort of through which you're playing to a green that's raised. And you see the the peninsula of uh, Houth, is how you call it? Houth, is that the name? Houth, yeah. Houth, yeah. yeah, Houth yeah. behind it. So it's, I think it was often the, the cover of our of our reports for Royal Dublin because it's one of the most picturesque uh, pictures you can take on the course. Um, we, I think it's a hole that's, that's still not completely finished. We would like to see, you know, we'd like to see the emphasis of the hole to be pushed a bit more to the left. Um, and so at the moment you have this big mound that wasn't used and we've just put a big bunker in there. And, and ideally we over time would like the fairway to also go left of that mound. And, and that way you would create a bit more variety in the ways that you could play the whole, um, the ditch that would be on that side would come a bit more into play. Uh, and the brave man would hit it left of the mound and have a much easier shot into the green. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody else will just hit it somewhere to the right. And, and the more to the right you go, the harder the shot in will become, become. Also, the way we've put the bunker, we've really emphasized the bunker next to the green on the right, which mm-hmm. catches a lot of balls that when you come from the right. It does. And it's funny, I've always felt that the playing strategy, even before the new bunkers bunkers went in, the playing strategy has always favoured the blind approach from behind that mound yeah. just because of the orientation of the green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, I think eight is a nice hole. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely going to be a favourite from, you know, from a visibility point of view. And, and of course, it's got, um, it's got the high green, which is difficult. And, and the runoff on the left. I mean, that's the one thing. You do have a couple of these runoffs on the left, but that's kind of difficult to avoid given the landforms that you have on the course on that stretch. Indeed, indeed. We, we touched briefly on hole number 11 earlier on. Um, I think the old, as you said, the old number of bunkers was 12. We yeah, now have five. That, 13 or 11, so yeah, it was somewhere yeah. between. Yeah. yeah, as we said earlier on, the new carry bunker, some 35, 30 to 35 yards short of the green, seems to be causing a little consternation among some of my lower single-figure handicap cohort. It's, it's funny how... You know, the flanking bunkers on the left that have now been removed. If you were over there, you really had enough trouble. You didn't really need to be in a bunker. I, I, I'm speaking from personal experience there. Yeah. It certainly seems just in general that some of the, the, the driving, the opportunity for, dri- for driving has become a little bit easier, perhaps a little bit more space. But mm-hmm. obviously, but the same token, if you want to challenge a bunker, you can open up a better angle to do so. Yeah. Again, another question from a member, the same member, actually. He seems to think that the approach shots have been made more difficult and the driving made easier. Would you concur to a certain degree with that? Yeah, but that's something that I see a lot on Harry Cole Par 5s. I mean, Harry Cole Par 5s are not generally very difficult driving holes. They tend to be more focused on the second and third shot. Uh, if anything, more on the you know the shot into the green. Uh, that that's my experience with with having seen a lot of them. That doesn't mean that was always the case here. I I think, listen, the whole idea is to get a to get a chance to get into this green. You really have to be as right as possible on the fairway. Yeah. The more you go left, the longer your shot in is going to be. Uh, and that's that's asymmetry of defense. So you want to go in two to the green. You have to take on those two bunkers on the right. You go further uh-huh. to the left. Yeah, you're kind of taking that option out, or you're going to have to hit an even longer shot in, which makes it even more risky. Yeah. Uh, and if you're going to miss on a long shot into the green, miss it on the right. Now, 
that's basically the other thing. Uh, you still, you'll find your ball, but it will still be, you know, uh, tricky because we, we took the bunker on the right of the green out, but it's it's become a very interesting landform, uh, a bit of a knot, a bit of a knob there. Where basically, if you're on the right side, you have to take that on in your chip or your bumper run mm -hmm. to get it onto the green. So, but again, so it will be interesting to see. I, what I look forward most to is to see how different groups of players play different holes differently. Because that's the most fun of, of, of our work, really, is to see how people and how quickly they adapt. My experience is, you know, the old boys within within four weeks know how to play a hole again after yeah. they've changed it. Um, yeah, just a couple of observations, maybe, and to see if you would agree. I think the size of the bunkers seems to increase the sense of scale on the property. And maybe maybe yeah. actually accentuates those micro contours uh, in in the fairways, yeah. Because obviously yeah. we are a particularly flat site, and you know, yeah. I guess to a certain degree, you know, not only interesting, but certainly given the fact that the bunkers are now larger in scale, it brings a bit more of grandeur to the place. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, you know, scale is very important. I mean, the bunkering ties into the scale of the landscape. And if you if you would basically build bunkers on a on a tree-lined course that was much more intimate, like say in New Zealand, you would use different bunker different bunker styles and being, you know maybe also somewhat smaller bunkers than you would use here. The misses as in missing the grain, the correct places to miss appear to be longer. I don't know if that's just my maybe there's an element of of trying to avoid the the current ground under repair conditions, but that's really just something that I've, yeah. I've, I've, I guess. I'm not sure that that's correct. I mean, that would be the case if you would have symmetrical bunkering in the front of the green everywhere. Okay. And given that we, yeah. I think, I think at the moment you might be right. On the other hand, a lot of your greens mm. kind of run up towards the back. So missing long gives you a harder recovery shot. Uh, well, a recovery shot with more height difference. I think in a lot of places also missing on the, side where there's no bunker but short is not a bad shot yeah no absolutely obviously not at the moment because no. if you're in no. one of those ground under repair yeah. locations you, you can you can potentially stymie yourself by accident yeah yeah, yeah. it just one other comment frank that particularly as as we mentioned that recontouring work to the left of five there seems to be slightly better flow and connectivity in terms of from hole to hole and between holes yeah. That's another another thing I've kind of um, kind of been aware of. That's that's not an accident. I mean, Shane, that's that's something that we did on purpose. I mean, when we design, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, basically when we design, we tend to also look what's the walk on, walk off to the next hole. And uh, what you want to do is create, and this is exactly where we worked very closely with Alan to say, where are your trouble spots? Where do you have erosion issues? Where do you have and, and, you know, the front of five is a good example where people would walk around, you know, around the, uh, around the bunker that was there. Um, and, and that would cause problems. I think the same at, at, at number six as well. Uh, and, um, and effectively, what you try to do is try to make the walk on, walk off as wide as possible, if that's possible. Sometimes it's not possible. Uh, 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 but in a lot of cases, it's like in the case of the walk off from 15 to 16, we well, the bunker needed to go. On. We wanted the bunker on the left, even though that wasn't ideal for the walk on, walk off to 16. But but in most cases, we we have been able to achieve that. 
Uh, I mean, that's one of the key things I like. Of course, I, I still think the walking distances between holes at Royal Dublin are too long. If I would be a member at Royal Dublin, that would be something that would irk me. And um, yeah, so I'm always looking to make walking distances shorter, easier, you know, and that's both from a playing point of view, but also a maintenance point of view. One other point that's just, just actually going to me is there's a number of long views that we haven't had before, particularly as an extended, expansive view across a number of holes. I'm just sort of thinking of the sixth in terms of actually the, the fact that the left-hand side sort of ups just short of the green is now there's a few less mounds and that bunkering isn't there. So actually you see across the 7T and then the 8th fairway and then the 10th fairway, if you like. It's, it was actually quite arresting and quite confusing the first time I saw that. Where the hell am I? <laughs> Where am I hitting that ball? <laughs> I, again, a, a conscious decision from you guys to sort of open up, open up some views. I, I don't know. I think that could be happenstance. I think um, we have looked at some. I mean, the, there's another one where if you walk to the green of number five and you look to the right, there's like a little gap you can mm -hmm. see through. You see the sea in the distance. And I remember asking both Jeff and and and, and Alan, Jeff, the, the secretary, and Alan, the the, the course manager. Why were the why are the dunes so high there? If your dunes would be a little bit lower, you would stand on the green and you'd see the sea. Wouldn't that be nicer? And they're like, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's I think in some sense um, maybe that's because you you didn't want to see the walkers with their dogs that are below the fence. But I don't know. I think that's that, so. These are small things that probably nobody would even notice if we would lower them. But you know, maybe some would. And I think I think golf is more than just hitting golf balls. It's also looking, what do you see and, and what's the feeling you have? And, and are you throwing a view out to see? You mentioned earlier on that we got some bunker liners, I think from White yep. Moss. Why would you install a bunker liner? Well, they're different. I mean, first of all, they're different systems. White Moss bunker mat is, who, who's the provider of bunker mat? That's a sort of, think of it like an artificial turf kind of carpet. You can also use Blinder, which is a rubber crumb, uh, which you install almost like an asphalt layer. You have capillary concrete, which is what well, kind of tells you what it is. It's, it's concrete that you're actually putting in. Um, I When I first started using these, I was very, a bit like, you know, you don't want to put foreign things into your body and you don't want to put foreign things into a, into a golf course. But this was something that when I first started, started using it was very much driven by the greenkeepers asking for it. Uh, the first place where I used bunker mat was a place called Copheath uh, in Birmingham, uh, old course. And the greenkeeper had experimented with it and said, this is how we should do it. I really like it. And I was like, well, fine. If you, if you like it, you're the one who has to maintain it. The advantage it brings, it brings a number of advantages. First of all, it's what they call, um, you know, one of the big problems that we have is sand sliding off the faces uh, and, and having a liner there basically both stabilizes the face and keeps the sand on it better, even if it's a very thin layer of sand. Second advantage that it brings is that it doesn't contaminate. So let's say you get a massive rainfall and you get, you know, let's say the whole bunker would wash out and you would have the bunker sand mixed with the sand that's underneath it. Now at a Lynx course, that's not too bad, but in a lot of places, let's say you're on pure clay, that wouldn't be fun. Third, what if you're in a place which has stones that keep coming up? Again, you want it. So it's almost like a it's almost like a, a, a closing layer that closes, you know, forms a bit of a layer between the subsoil with, and, and then the bunker sand above it. In our case, because we didn't have stones, we didn't mind the sand underneath because effectively you have perfect sand underneath, uh, but it's just too fine. 
what we did is we just basically used a bunker mat just for the for the faces but not for the bottoms uh, and uh, yeah so i think in our case it was more for wind erosion and and keeping the shapes of the bunkers because if you wouldn't have the liners you would get much more blowout especially in the bunkers that are facing the wind uh, but if you're on a clay site in england with a lot of stones well then you or like the adding you definitely want it you, you definitely want bunker either liner or what we have there used there is crushed granite or rubber crumb or whatever you know the materials that you use or capillary concrete golfers fascination with uh, perfect conditions in a bunker is that just in the general terms a a never-ending chasing your tail in terms of the fact that as you point yep. out different bunkers point in different directions different bunkers get more or less use different yep. bunkers etc 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 well i think it's interesting i took um, john mclaughlin uh, who's the uh, the uh, course manager at uh, wallacey we went on a trip to, to ireland to look at county down and uh, port rush uh, the uh, the bunkers because they're very different bunkers and what i learned i mean i I've been to these places before, but now just focusing very much on the bunkers. If you look at County Down, I mean, if you put the bunkers of County Down into any other golf course, the manager, the golf, the course manager will be fired immediately. I mean, the, the bunkers are just, yeah, I mean, they are, they're beautiful. They're extremely eroded. They're unplayable in places, but it's County Down. So people say, that's what it is. It's County Down. That's how the bunkers have been and always been. But if you put those bunkers in a Royal Dublin, You'd have mayhem, but at the same time, there's no mayhem at Royal County Down. And so why is that? Because uh, people are like, there are used to it, I guess. And, and I guess it fits. I mean, that sort of plays into the sense of place, yeah. I suppose. Um, which, which, uh, which sort of, I, I guess you guys did a very good job of fitting the new bunkers into the sense of place in Royal Dublin. Just apropos that sense of place idea. For a particularly flat site, what sort of levers can the flat site pull in relation to works on site? I suppose I'm trying to get at, you know, would it be folly or would it be silly to try and create height in Royal Dublin? I mean, I guess my, my, my question sort of stems from the fact that we don't have much, there isn't much of a view, if you like. Obviously, you have an industrial background of the, the cityscape and the port on one side. Even if you went 10, 15 metres up, you wouldn't see a huge amount of additional sites. You might see a little bit more of the sea. But I'm just wondering if, if, if what are the sort of levers, in addition to, obviously, we've already pulled the, the bunker lever, but, and, and Alan is pulling away on the, the firm and fast lever. What, what other sort of things can, could you consider doing that would fit? I think um, the area towards the sea is more interesting than the area towards the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, um, that's just a general observation. I mean, um, uh, I think the undulated land is, is, it doesn't have to be extreme, but the more undulation you have, the more interesting it is. And there is more interesting undulated land towards the call of the sea part of the property than it is towards the other side. So, uh-huh. but that's a big change. I mean, I think you would, you know, you could improve the golf course by moving more golf into call it the area that's more undulated okay but okay. That, how you do that that's to be determined i mean that that 
maybe it can be done, maybe it can be done. That's one thing. I think the other thing which you, you know, I think wind is a very important one. I think it doesn't matter how undulating it is or how flat it is. The wind will still make it interesting. And, um, you know, and I think you don't need big, it's, 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 um, George Waters wrote a very interesting book called Sand, uh, which talks about micro undulations. Uh, um, and George Waters was, uh, uh, basically, I think that's, that, that's, that's what you, what you want uh, at a place like Royal Dublin, which is comparable to like a, you know, the new course, the old course, the new course at St. Andrews, just smaller undulations. Uh, but, but yeah, and, and, and sometimes views and the views you get when you're more on the seaside. I think the views toward Howth is, is nice. And I don't mind seeing the, the harbor. I think that's part of the Royal Dublin uh, fun yeah. experience. Yeah. Mm. I, I suppose in many ways, as you pointed out there, you know, f flatter sites such as St. Andrews and Kingston Heath maybe and Brancaster yeah. maybe, they should act as the inspiration as opposed to maybe Port Murnock or Ballybunion yeah. or Big Dune Golf because the two things in character are completely different. Yeah, and then yeah, Port Marnock is 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 different than Ballybunion and Wallasey. I mean, Wallasey and Ballybunion are or or you know, Carn or uh, Cruden Bay has very much more extreme dunes, and even at at, at Cruden Bay, there's still extremer dunes closer to the sea they haven't used, which they could have. Um, so I think and Royal Hague is very extreme. And Royal Hague only has twenty bunkers, and probably could have ten bunkers, and it would still be difficult. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's closer to the original links golf than say some of these courses. I mean, like Ballybunion or, or Royal Hague are less linksy than maybe Royal Dublin is. So it's yeah, it's just a taste matter. Maybe if we take a look at master planning in general. I mean, obviously we mentioned Dr. Hawtrey's works previously, and after the the big revision finished in 2006 he would visit on a yearly basis obviously suggesting revisions to the course and re reacting to to what he's hearing from captains and greenkeepers yeah. and uh, links conveners and so on and so forth this approach seems to contrast with a more formal long-term master planning process you might speak to the advantages of a medium to long-term master plan and, and, and how that may differ in terms of end result in more formal yearly a yearly schedule of visits yeah i think i think we are big proponents of doing a, a a formal course plan and that's not because of you know we earn more money doing that i think it's we've done it both we've we've worked with clubs that said come every year and we'll talk about what we're going to talk about the the difficulty with that is that as you said it's driven by just the whatever the person who you're meeting at that day wants to talk about rather than what's the strategic need of the golf course or what's the long-term plan to get from a to b uh, um, what was very clear is we were tasked with doing a bunker re restoration renovation at Royal Dublin. That didn't. That doesn't mean that we didn't have opinions about like you know mowing lines or T positions or um, you know uh, alterations to holes. But we were clearly told your brief at the moment is to make a successful bunker renovation project, and that's what we've been focusing on. Now, now that that's finished, I'm sure. You know, we will be having discussions with the club about other other elements. I mean, there are many other things that you could talk about, and um, you know, we haven't talked about them yet. But I'm sure if we do, if, if we've done a good enough job on the on the bunker renovation, and people have trust in our you know judgment and and what we've achieved, then 
uh, let's hope that we will get a chance to basically give our views on some of the other things. Yeah, rather than extract a whole master plan from you at this point, Frank, um, I was hopeful we could look at, at some potential additional elements that may or may not appear in the final recorded version of this, uh, obviously, which will give us some significant, perhaps, and some marginal gains. You never know. If I'm fortunate, I may end up giving you a couple of ideas. <laughs> before, before we do anything else, I've been wondering whether the current location for the service or heavy goods vehicles road is in the optimal position to best utilize the total site area. Uh, you mean the road? The road that they... The road, yeah, yeah. the back road, yeah. Uh, I would say no. I would say no. I mean, basically, if the, I think there are two problems with it. One is it's too visible from too many holes. Mm -hmm. And second, it, there's a lot of space between the road and where the ditch and they call it the levee towards the, how do you call it, the, the flooding levee is. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ideally, yeah. if you had unlimited funds and, um, you know, you, you got the permission to do it, uh, you would put the road as far back against that levee as possible. Uh -huh. And what advantages would a change of this nature facilitate? Well, you, just just more space. more space. You, you see it less, um, and uh, anything we can do to see the road less would be good. And to create a bit of a, I mean, at the moment, from my feeling, there's no there's no border when you when you play holes ten, eleven, uh, thirteen. Um, there's no there's no boundary kind of there's no end of you know it's just flat and then you have the road and there's more and then you see the levee and i think it would be ideally you would have some sort of something there either a dune or, or, or so you wouldn't see as much of what you're seeing now now of course then the question becomes where would you find that material how would you build it is that do we want to do that moving the road would be very expensive huh? keep that in mind yeah for sure colt and his Golden Age contemporaries were great believers in the utilization of fairway width, giving the weaker golfer, as we said, plenty of space to play off the tee, while providing interesting puzzles and yeah. angles for the better player to consider and find. With this in mind, I'm assuming that none of our new bunkers will be located in the rough. Would that be fair? Not if we can help it. Okay. Um, I'm kind of thinking of that bunker, maybe short of 17 as an example. I'm assuming the mowing line will, will over time be moved out. No, it is. It's being moved. It, it basically, Alan's already looking at how we can get grass in there that will be, um, you know, that will be able to allow him to mow it. Yeah. No. Okay. All bunkers will be in the fairway. When Colt revised the course in 1920, significant attention was paid to installing drainage ditches. The practice would continue over the course of the next 40 years to combat both the tide and a notoriously high water table. It's actually interesting to peruse an old course guide from 1989, which I can share with you if that's of any interest, that illustrates the extent to which these ditches were a component part of hole strategy and the aesthetic as they reached their fingers out across fairways. Many of the ditches were culverted back in the noughties. Just wondering whether the reintroduction of additional visible drainage ditches might be something to consider. They seem to work out quite well at Oakmont and Carnoustie, or maybe the old version of Wentworth West. They're part of our heritage and history. Should we look to reconnect with, with said, uh, said ditches? Well, ditches have, um, have a very, you know, have an important function. Obviously, you have a high water table, uh, and ditches basically help you 
lower the water table in place because what effectively, you know, this comes back to my old civil engineering studies is, uh, you know, why, why are ditches a certain distance from each other in the Netherlands to basically pull down the water table low enough that it never reaches, uh, because there's always a, a, a curved line between the, the, the surface water that you see in the ditches that connects it in a bow. And if that bow doesn't touch the, the top surface, then you're okay. If it does, then you need to make the ditches closer together so that the bow doesn't get as high, if you know what I mean. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So that's why that's how you determine the, the, the distance of the ditches. Um, I think, yeah. you know, I'm sure the course could use more ditches. I am not a big fan of using the ditches in design unless it would be strategic. And why? Because ditches mm -hmm. tend to be tend to be quite penal for the weaker players. And you already have, I think, two ditches that are very in play, one at number 10 and one at number 14. Mm -hmm. uh, Correct. Uh, which I think, I think that's already enough. I wouldn't be in favor of going up to like five holes with ditches in play. Okay. Uh? Okay. Something else that can be fairly emotive is trees on golf courses. We have a number of Monterey pines in the property that were planted at some point back in the 1970s. I visited Kingston Heath in Melbourne in early 2020 and was struck by the grandeur and scale that an expansive short grass area near the clubhouse can engender. With this in mind, and hopefully I'm not going to get shot, I'm going to tempt fate and ask you for your thoughts on the two pines that separate the 18th fairway from the first fairway at Royal Dublin. Could the removal of both of these trees and the subsequent creation of a short grass shared fairway work well in this location? This may be the one I have to take out. Yeah, well, I'm, listen, let's first start out. You have like, what, 20 trees on the property or 15 or 10? I, I don't even know. Very little, very few. And they're very emotive yeah. because they were, I think a lot of them, a number were cut down and half the membership were, were up in arms. Um, the court, if you took out all the trees tomorrow, it wouldn't influence anything other than the aesthetics of people liking or not liking, which is there's no good answer to that. Some people like the trees. Some people don't like the trees. You know, they, everybody's entitled to their opinion. I think it would change anything to the strategy of the course. Um, it would change the agronomy. I mean, it gives it gives Alan some headaches in places, the trees. Um, uh, yeah, would you make a double fairway? I'm not sure in that place. It could be, could not be. I think there are also ditches there because you're talking between 1 and 14, you were saying, or 1? No, no, 1 and 18. Yeah. Well, but yeah. I mean... Effectively, what you would do is it wouldn't be in play for hole number one, but it would be in play for hole number mm. 18, potentially. It's, it's interesting. I did talk to Alan about, you know, where the new bunker on 18 is. I would like to see a bit more grass and fairway behind that bunker on the left. Uh, and that, but that's still 30, 40 yards away from anywhere where you're talking about. I think it would be, yeah. I would be in favor of, I mean, what I would like to see is, is at the moment, I would like to see more of a transition from the golf course to the clubhouse. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I was found that, you know, great golf courses and clubhouse connections are ones where you, you know, seamlessly transition from an 18th or a putting green into a terrace or, or a clubhouse. Yeah. And in some sense, your clubhouse is a bit closed off against the, you know, you really have to go around it to get inside to go up. Yes, you can use the stairs, but that's something, again, I have no solution now, but that's just the feeling I have. I wouldn't mind a putting green or something between where is 18 and the first tees where maybe the, you know, you have one on the side, maybe that, maybe it won't work, but that's something that I miss. 
uh, more than short grass mm. area there. And how that exactly works, I wouldn't know. But that's just something I, I that's something that I feel missing uh, compared to some other great clubs uh, at World mm. Island. You know, a, a recent trend on Lynx revisions has seen the ubiquitous introduction of sandy waste areas as a particular calling card. In general, how do you assess this utilization of sand scrapes? And do you think that such a feature works equally well in all sites or just perhaps a subset of? Well, I mean, I've been using this for, you know, for 20 years. I mean, it's not a new thing. Effectively, if you're on a Lynx course with a lot of wind and you scrape, you scrape dunes, it's gonna, you're going to get sand low. But that's the way it should go. I mean, I don't think you create, you know, from scratch and try to keep them static sand blow areas. The whole idea of a sand blow area is that it's a dynamic sand blow area. So you, you actually, you create a wound somewhere and then it starts happening and something, something develops. What you're seeing now in a lot of places are these manicured sand areas that look pretty much only good from a drone. So they look, it's, I'm sure it's because we're not having drones. If we wouldn't have had drones, these sand areas wouldn't have been there because you don't, you know, you never see pictures off the tees of these sand areas because they, you, know, you only see them when you're in a drone. So it's because we have drones now, it's very fashionable to make them, but they're too static and they're too ubiquitous, as you're saying. I mean, you know, we had sand areas at Royal Hague in, in 2003 because they were natural sand blowing areas. At Le Touquet, when we when we cut a lot of trees, we had a lot of wounds in the in the landscape. Literally, that's what it is. And they would close up. And in the process of closing up, it's a, there was an area there was sand blowing. They had to put fences up to create you know barriers for holes not greens not being flooded with sand. That's that's the real sand blow areas. Uh, like Tapan is in an area which which was sediment of the glaciers. It's it's dunes area. Tapan is a, a heathland course in the Netherlands. If you look at the aerial picture, you'll see big sandy areas around the golf course, which which are basically open areas that keep open because people walk their dogs there. There's a lot of kids run around in it. And we've been trying to bring that back as well. But you don't make it in a manicured way where you have like these little wiggly lines. No, it, it, that's what's wrong with it. It's not natural. It's it basically is beautification based on drone pictures. And yeah, I mean, nothing wrong with it. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just not natural. And it doesn't, if you do something like that at Royal Dublin, the way you do it is you'd basically make a wound and let it develop rather than manicure yeah. it and make it in a certain shape. Yeah, yeah. And it would fit, it um, would fit with Royal Dublin. The point would be, I mean, it's interesting. We were working on a, a, a report for Wallasey, you know, the course in, in, in Liverpool. And if you see the old pictures of, of, of Wallasey of, say, 1920s, um, what's amazing about it is, is that they couldn't stabilize the sand there. If you see some of the pictures, it's one big sand blow, the whole place. Le Touquet, they could not build a golf course closer, La Mer. They couldn't build that closer to the sea because it was so unstable that they couldn't get a golf course to be built there. So they built, they built wow. it you know, a kilometer more inland because that's where they could build it. Uh -huh. That is sand blow, not what I would call, what you see now is gardening. And there's nothing wrong with gardening, but it's not something I get excited about. Uh, maybe before we, before we get into the home straight, Frank, I'm just keen to get a wee update on the Addington. Uh, for those that, uh, that don't know, it was uh, a cold amber Abercrombie and Croom. Yep. Uh, creation from the 1910s is that correct yeah i'm not sure if croom was involved at that point but it's definitely cold in addington i'm oh, sorry cold in 
Abercrombie. Quote Colton Abercrombie. Obviously, a, a great example of not so much of atrophy, but just possibly benevolent neglect in terms of they didn't do anything to it and the trees yeah. took over. Yeah, I always use it's atrophy. Is, I'm not sure if it's the same word. I use entropy. Entropy is, is like sort of the word if you, you know, it, I think atrophy is slight. It's maybe almost the same. Uh, my, my, my English isn't good enough maybe for that, but I think entropy is the word that I would use more than atrophy. You know? mm-hmm. Beg your pardon. Worry, don't worry. Beg your pardon. Beg your pardon. Yeah, when I hosted Clates on the show last year, we touched upon your early tree removal works. I understand since then significant woodland management efforts have opened up many of the hidden visuals and vistas. What can you tell us about what's happened on site over the past 12 months? Well, I think significant is an understatement. It's, um, uh, mm-hmm. I'm very happy with what's happening there. I mean, obviously, you know, like everywhere, we work closely with the, with the authorities in, in cases like this. Uh, where we basically we we work with a tree you know a tree expert in this case John Nicholson who's the best you can get well one of the best you can get somebody we work a lot with in the in the UK and um, yeah I mean he's done an amazing job together with the contractors and and what you see is certain holes you just you don't recognize them anymore and the key thing is for us to look through this uh, and to to, to, to try to see what you're going to see when the trees are gone. And this is always the most difficult process when you deal with a normal club because they're shit scared. And they'll be like, oh, but what are you talking about? This is the only places where you can do this is really with, with either there's like at Lutuke where we have, or in Harlow where we were working with a, a CEO of a company, commercial company. Or wherever Ryan knows. Exactly. Is. And Ryan is, 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 he gets it. And, and, and Ryan is brave and, um, and has long, you know, has a long vision for it. And, and again, I'm not trying to slag off committees or anything. It is difficult. You're a member of a club and then all your friends are going to hate you because you cut, you know, a thousand trees. Yeah. You think about that twice. Um, but the point, of course, is always when you see the result, it is amazing. Uh, because that's how it was meant to be. And that's what we have, you know, when you have old pictures showing how it was, you go back to that. That's that's how it was. And yeah, so I'm very excited about it. I mean, interestingly enough, most of the architecture work at Addington is cutting trees. Uh, you know, most of the other stuff is still original. We're mowing, li- you know, bring the mowing lines wider out. We're installing, we installed an irrigation, um, uh, an irrigation, a new irrigation, which was extensive just to basically, because we wanted much wider fairways, much more short grass areas. Um, you know, uh, and, and now it's just executing the vision, you know, getting good maintenance, really good maintenance, getting some of these short areas to be even better. Some of the soil isn't perfect that we're working on, so we need to do a lot of work. It, it's a tough place to be, a, you know, greenkeeper. The, the, the course manager has is, is got, his, you know, it's got his, uh, his, his, his work cut out, and, and he's doing a great job. So, yeah, I mean, basically it's now waiting. Um, there's a lot of, you know, the bunk, we did a bunker on bunker work on six holes. We'll do it on another six holes this year and then probably another six holes the last year. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I think, listen, it's work in progress. I'm told I'm very excited about it, but when you go and play it, you have to still squeeze your eyes a bit to, to look through, you know, it's not all there yet. Some of the maintenance needs time to get into place to be, but it will be an amazing place. I mean, the, the goal is to be what it was before. It was before the war was what Sunningdale is now. And I think there's no reason why it couldn't be in that place again. It's a pity that that second course uh, disappeared. Yep. It is. Hey-ho. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, Clates is uh, often prone to pointing out that after is always better. 
I will post a couple of pictures that illustrate some of the after and before pictures from the Addington. To my untrained eye, I really have to agree with him. After is better. And it's, I mean, that particularly that, remember a video when he was over last year, I think, and you had him blindfolded and uh, Ed took the blindfold off and he was just blown away by that yeah, part three. Ed likes drama. Um, I'm not sure how staged that was, but it, it looked good on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, one last question about uh, some something from your back catalogue, which uh, I think some listeners will find interesting. The Lynx Valley near Ermelo in the central in, in central yep. Netherlands. Something completely different. Yep. I think you finished Lynx Valley in 2018. Yep. What can you tell us about this somewhat unique and interesting project? Well, it's it's an interesting project because it started in 2002. Uh, basically, this was a this was a site owned by a, a, a blue-blooded family, um, or at least a rich family. Um, and basically, uh, the family had grown, grown, grown. They had this big estate, what was it, 600 acres, and they had an old Heather, uh, fair, uh, Heather Fairways golf course on there. So that's not part of Lynx Valley. It's, it's next door. And it, it was called the Ullerberg. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, it was short mown fairways of Heather. And the only other place in the world where you had that was, I think, one hole on the old course in the, in the 1800s. And that obviously didn't okay. last. Because obviously, if you have too much mm-hmm. play, it will go, Heather. But it's an amazing place. If you're ever in the Netherlands, you should really go and try to see it. You can, yeah, you can, you can play it. it. It's very different because you get no role. Uh, but it's, it's fun to play. Um, so... That's 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 uh, sorry, Frank. That sounds almost like you're playing off a sweeping brush or something like that. Yeah. In terms of just it just like little bit like yeah. Velcro. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. Yeah. And and the greens because they have a lot of wild boar there. They have a big they have wire you know they wired fences around the greens. It's 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 you're going back into 1900s. You could play. They play hickory. They played the hickory championship there, which was a lot of fun. So if you're into that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and you ever want to go there, give whoever of your listeners, give me a buzz and or, or an email and I will put you in touch with the people and you can go and play it. But it's, 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 it's really cool. Now the family knew they had this, this, basically they had this, they, you know, this family was very rich in the beginning and I think they're, they're not poor anymore, but it takes a lot of money to ra- to run such an estate. And so they were looking for ways how they could run the, the estate. And so the first way they found that, just after the war, was to dig sand. They had this hill, the Ullerberg, means the, the mountain of Uller. And they so they, they dig off the whole mountain and just sold the sand. That, you know, that was still allowed in those days. So then they had a big, then they had a pit and the sand is gone. So what do you do next? Well, then they said, okay, well, we can fill it with rubbish. So they made it a rubbish pit. And they filled the, the, the hole for about, I would say, 60%. And then the government stopped it and said, well, you know, you've done enough. We can't do any more rubbish uh, filling. So they had a half-filled pit and rubbish bin. And they're like, what are we going to do with this? And I said, well, you can put a golf course in there. And that was one of the ideas. Of one of yeah, I was approached because one of the members thought that that was possible. I looked at it. Yeah, it's great. It's small. It's only 25 hectares. So that's, what, uh, 50, 60 acres. So you can only put you know, nine or 12 holes in it. But you have 20 meter height difference in, and it's pure sandy soil in the places where it's not covered. And then the, the garbage pit was, the, the garbage uh, dump was pit, was was covered with two meters of, of, of pure sand. So um, yeah, so effectively we started talking, talking, talking. The family in the end didn't want to take the risk of building a golf course. 
By that time, I was thinking, I can only build nine holes. This is in the middle of the biggest heathland in the Netherlands. And so it's unique that we ever was a, were able to build a golf course there. Um, and I thought, okay, well, let's maximize the nine holes. And I was, this was like early, end of 2000, say 2008, somewhere. I was reading, again, Simpson's book. And, and in, the, in the appendix, in the, in the end, it talks about the reversible course, the principle of a reversible course, which he built for a couple of uh, dukes and, and barons in France because he had some clients in France with a lot of money and, and an estate. And then it's very smart to do that because you can just, you know, double the number of holes that you have. So when I was reading that, I thought, hey, that's something I could use. And that was interesting. So I went on to Golf Club Atlas. We talked, to, I, I wrote it down. It was very interesting to then, I think it was Tom Doak who says, I'm not sure that that would work. You wouldn't get, you know, one loop would be better than the other. And then it took me another 10 years to build it. And four years later, he built loop. He so it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. 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 had read the same book and uh, I think he, he got thinking about it and uh, so it's interesting you still read the discussion on Golf of Atlas if you, if you type it in um, so yeah it took a long time like anything in the Netherlands if you want to build a new course especially in a sensitive area like this it took us almost yeah 15 years and um, and then the reversibility is, 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 I think it works especially for a nine hole course. Uh, I think uh, the loop is in, in, in Michigan is 18 holes. Well, if you have the space, that's good. But I think it works better with nine because you can then, you know, you have nine holes, less space. It would work very well in a lot of urban areas. So I, we've been definitely, I've built one in the Netherlands, which is Erleberg. I think it's, people like it. It's, it was ranked highly, it was in one of the uh, number 19 in the golf magazine of the world, the top 50 uh, nine hole courses in the world. It's people go there. It's completely different you'd expect from them because it's got a lot of height differences. And what you do get is when you play in the, the other direction, it's a completely different golf course. And that's what people like about it. So on Mondays, you play with the clock. And then on Tuesdays, you play against the clock. So if you have a fixed, let's say you play every Tuesday, every week you play a different course. Huh? And then once a month or so, they do a, a shotgun where you start on a hole, you play nine holes in one direction, then you turn around and you play nine uh -huh. holes back. And so effectively, cool. you play 18 different holes. So, and that's, again, something that's very, very popular. Now, you cannot do that every day because, obviously, uh -huh. it, people ask me, can you play in two directions? No, not really, unless you're wearing helmets. But, uh, <laughs> but you can do that. And it's a great, I think it's a great idea. We've done, we've done a similar course in Germany. Um, I'm looking to do a course like that in any country and, and, and especially close to urban areas where you have limited space. Um, uh, I'm together with Sam Cooper. We have a, an, a possible project where we're looking at doing this uh, near Liverpool, but yeah, if people have a site and they've been interested, they should contact me because we're the only ones who, well, I think that's not true. There has been one other one done in Europe, but in Europe, I would say we're definitely the market leader on that. And am I right in saying, Frank, that you're better off having a relatively flat site for that to work? Yeah, it made it, it was difficult. Better. I mean, obviously, undulation is probably not a, a, a characteristic you want for a reversible golf course. It made it more difficult. So we, in the end, we actually did build 10 greens instead of nine because uh, one of the finishes would otherwise have a very steep uphill last shot, and we didn't like that. So we built 10 greens. At first, we thought, great, so now we have 10 greens. So one of the greens can be used as a putting green. Mm -hmm. Problem with that is, of course, that it wouldn't work with the plugs. So that's yeah. why, in the end, we we so, built another eleventh green as the putting green. But uh, yeah, the idea was was okay. Uh, the best is a relatively flat site, uh, no roads going through it. If you have roads going through it, it, it kind of messes it up. 
because uh-huh. you can't imagine because then you can't, you can't play over the road. So then you really split it into a loop of three and a loop of six or a loop of four and a loop of five. Better to have no roads and flatter is better than than extremely undulated. Yeah, absolutely. But it's 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 fun. Funny enough, people always think the hardest part is making where where do you put the greens and how do you design the greens? That's not that difficult. The difficulty is where do you put the tees? Yeah, because you want to, ideally, you would reuse as many of the tees as possible. And that's the complex, especially when you get height differences, that's the complex, that's the complex part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. So, so note to note to listeners: if you have a site out there that's yeah, it's flat and you wonder how to do it, give it a call. Popular. I mean, there's this 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 sort of site called Leading Courses. It's a it's a review site, and I think Links Valley has now been chosen three times for the last three years as the best nine hole course in the Netherlands. So it's it's not just the call it the nuts, the golf nuts who like it. It's really the golfers like mm-hmm. it because it you know people there are very few people who really dis, dislike the principle. It's just it's very popular. Cool. Cool. Just maybe slightly wider before we ask the final two questions, Frank. As someone who has extensive experience in assisting some of the very best courses in the Netherlands, you are very well placed to provide our listeners with an elevator pitch as to why they should consider a golfing trip to the European Lowlands. I understand there's in the region of 250 courses in the Netherlands. Pray tell, what will listeners find if they swap their usual trip to Spain, Portugal or Florida for one to the Netherlands? Well, uh, I think you, you, your, your stay, if you stay in either Amsterdam or Utrecht would be more fun than in Torremolinos or, you know, uh, or uh, Marbella. I think that's one thing. So you can, you can fly, flying in is cheap and easy. First of all, you fly into Schiphol and Schiphol is within an hour and a half drive of all the good top 15 golf courses. Now, I would say, um, typically speaking, the top 25 courses would be interesting for everybody to play. Uh, and and they're you know as I said they're all in the West. Most of them are accessible. Even the the call it the more exclusive and private ones are accessible if you call and write the secretary beforehand. Um, you know we have two courses that are in the top hundred of the world, which is quite amazing. Which is Royal Hague and Depan. Both of them are cold courses, and uh, I'm fortunate enough to be a member at both. Also, but so I'm biased, but. Uh, those are amazing courses. If you can, if you manage to get onto them, uh, they're m- worth the money to pay for them and to play, uh, because you know it's not that easy to play a top hundred course in the world. And then I would say there there are another 10, 15 courses that are really worth your time. Uh, I can maybe make a list that you can put it up uh, on the you know on the site. Look at the cookie jar movies that they've made recently. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners would have seen them or listened to them. That will give you a good sense. They played four of the top courses, uh, or was it five? I think it was four. Um, Royal Hague, De Pan, Eindhoven, Nordweg, Kenner. No, they played five. And, you know, all of them are in the top 20 of Europe. Um, all of them welcome visitors if you, you know, if you come beforehand. So it's easy logistically. It's, it's a country that speaks English perfectly. Um, you know, the prices have gone up uh, because people do read what, what it costs to play some of the top courses in the UK. And unfortunately, they have gone up tremendously. But, you know, uh, I would say uh, it's, it's worth it. And it's been worth it for a long time. I mean, I remember the first visitor I had was uh, Tom Dunn, uh, uh, an art, uh, how do you call it, a journalist who wrote for um, 
uh, Golf and Traveler, I think was the magazine then. He's, he's still a, an active golf journalist, very good writer. He visited already in 2007 or something to just say why people should make the trip to, to, to the Netherlands. I mean, the other trip is to make the trip to Paris. There are a number of really good golf courses around Paris. And those are the two trips that I would advise any Brit. Also the trip to, I guess, to Le Touquet, Hartlow, Beldun, which is on the coast, which is very easy for anybody who lives in the south of England. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you can't go wrong. And I, I'm happy to put down, I mean, what you should do is there's a, I think it's in Dutch, I think it might be translated, top 50 uh, list of Dutch courses. Anything that's top 30 of that, go and play. You, you won't be disappointed. You'll, you'll have fun. Okay. It's one uh, itch I'm hoping to scratch in the not too distant future. Yeah, well, you're very welcome. It's an omission on my part, which I need to rectify. Listen, we're into the home stretch now, Frank. Uh, all my guests get asked the same final two questions. The last but one question relates to the Frank Pont bucket list of golf courses. Please nominate five, four, six, whatever you can. You can nominate as many as you want. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think what um, you know, basically the first one for me would be Pine Valley. I haven't been to Pine Valley yet. I, I, I will go. Haven't been there. I mean, the best, I've been to Chicago Golf Club. I've been to, you know, uh, National Golf Links, Shinnecock, but I haven't been to, to Pine Valley yet. So that's 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 a hole in my education, to call it like that. I would like to see Friars Head as well. You know, Cork Crenshaw, probably one of their best. Yeah, you could say Sand Hills, but I'd probably be more keen to see Friars Head. That, that's the one you get the boat out to, or the launch out to, isn't it? No, no, well, no. Uh, sorry, I didn't get that. Sorry. Sorry, uh, you get a ferry or a boat out to no, Friars Head. No, Friars Head no? is is is, um, is on Long Island. It's beg your pardon. Yeah, as yeah. The Cork Crenshaw, one of the yeah, I, I one of my classmates worked on that, and he always said it's amazing, and I still have to go and see it. Um, Royal Melbourne, huh? haven't made the Aussie trip yet. You've not been down there with Seven Mile Beach on the on the go. They haven't roped in for a quick uh, quick oh, trip down to Hobart. No, I, it's 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 interesting because the the greenkeeper, uh, the course manager at uh, uh, at at Puerto de Hierro, Javi, just made a, a two week trip down south, and and Gonzalo, okay. who's our new part uh, our new partner, uh, it was like shit. I should have known that I would have gone along, and I'm like, yeah, I would have gone along as well. <laughs> I'm sure we will when the opening of Seven Mile Beach happens. We will go down with the whole crew, and we will enjoy. Uh -huh. it. And that will then allow me to do the whole. You know, Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Victoria. Um, you, you love Wickham. it. You I, love I, it. I haven't even seen Cape Wickham. So, I mean, that I need okay. to see those. Um, yeah, in Europe, I think I've seen most of what I'd like to see. Uh, I, hard to tell if there's anything that I haven't seen yet or haven't played. Pretty much uh, that's it. I, I'd like to make a trip to Japan, um, see some stuff there. That's about, I think that's about it. See some Allison bunkers, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's left of it, or or the? I mean, obviously that Hirono's been redone, but there are uh -huh. the two other ones that I'd love to see that are still that are still haven't been done. But yeah, I think in America there's still there's still a lot that I haven't seen. I mean, I I really really need to spend. I mean, one of the problems is being I'm a I'm a, a raider on the golf magazines rating committee. You try to go and anytime I'm somewhere, I try to see and play golf courses, but it would help my that part of my my uh, hobby of my life to not do any golf architecture work for the next two years and just travel and make pictures and yeah I mean unfortunately that's not in the 
in the offering at the moment. We're too busy for well, that. Well, well, may may you continue not to be able to play that golf then. So I, I wish you, I wish you, wish you continued success. Come here. Just lastly, two golf books to augment any golfer's library. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm sure people usually come up with very. I mean, you obviously have the dope book. You have the Jeff Shackleford books. You got the. Um, the um, what's it the, the 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 standard book the 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 you know the 101 in golf architecture by uh, I'm spaced out at the moment but the two books that I would recommend one is uh, one is might be difficult to find but it's worth finding it it's it's this one uh, the art of golf design which mm-hmm. has basically uh, paintings by Michael Miller and essays by Jeff Sackerford and a lot of Max Baer. Uh, articles in there really oh excellent it's a fantastic book again um if you can find it i'm sure if you go on ebay you can find it hopefully not a thousand a piece but you can and the other one is this one lines of charm which again is by jeff shackleford so i've got a slight bias towards him and these are Mm -hmm. you know all the quotes that he's collected brilliant and irreverent quotes notes and anecdotes from golf golden age architects cool Yep. Well, so best look to people to try and find those. I, I, I certainly have seen copies of the first book uh, available online. I've not seen copies of the second book, but okay. people might uh, people might uh, might have a little bit more luck than me. Listen, Frank, before we let you go, you might just tell listeners how they can keep up to date with developments at both Infinite Variety, Golf Design, and Clayton DeVries and Punt. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, we've got... Um, We've got like a very active uh, Twitter account and Instagram account, which are, you know, CDP golf. If you type that in, you're going to find that. Um, we're in the process of reworking our website. Um, uh, you know, Sam Cooper is working on that. It's going to include a lot of very exciting 3D stuff, which also is of the hand of Joe McDonald, who, who joined us recently. And we're very happy to have him on board. Um, so, yeah. And then I think we, we Mike, Clayton, you can't get off the podcast. I'm. I, this has been like I think the last one I did was a year ago. So we tried also, you know, do podcasts to to, to talk to people. Um, yeah, and I think we're, we're that, that's about it. I think uh, we've just created a brochure. So if if you know, contact me if you'd be interested in a brochure, which is not so much of a. a it's it's more of a, a magazine almost, like with interviews with the various people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah. And, 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 and always be happy, you know, feel free to contact us because we get a lot of, we get a lot of inquiries and it, we don't mind. It's, it's sometimes, you know, it doesn't mean it always has to be business. Um, we're not travel agencies, so we don't get every, you know, we're not going to help everybody set up every trip, but, you know, again, I'm happy to point you out. And what I said, I'll, I'll give you a list of, of clubs that I would recommend. Uh, but yeah, in general, uh, you know, my, my email is, if you Google me, you'll find my contact details. Uh, it should be easy to find that. Frank Pont, it's been my absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Many thanks for your time. Yeah. I look forward to cursing you and the project team in May when the new bunkers are due to open and to see your suggestions for the next steps of the golf course and due course. Yeah. Go easy. Okay, thank you. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.